0: Welcome to LaGrave Avenue CRC's Sermon Podcast. We return to our epiphany series, Windows on the Word. How do you feel about the zealous side of Jesus? Do you think that we should have more zeal in our own lives? What would happen if we were more zealous? You're listening to Jesus in the Temple by Rev. Christy Mannion. If you've been watching LeGrave Communications, you know that I changed the passage. It appears correctly in uh, the bulletin this morning. We're reading in the book of John, chapter 2, verses 13 to 22. That's on page 1649 in the Pew Bibles. And John writes this When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple courts, he found people selling cattle and sheep and doves and others sitting at tables exchanging money. So he made a whip out of cords, and he drove all from the temple courts, both sheep and cattle. He scattered the coins of the money changers, overturned their tables. To those who sold doves, he said, Get these out of here! Stop turning my father's house into a market. His disciples remembered that it is written, zeal for your house will consume me. The Jews then responded to Jesus, what sign can you show us to prove you have authority to do all of this? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. They replied, It's taken 46 years to build this temple, and you're going to raise it in three days? But the temple he had spoken of was his body. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he had said. And then they believed the scripture and the words that Jesus had spoken. This is the word of the Lord. So we're in a series, Windows on the Word, and that means we're, we're looking at different um, scenes from the life of Jesus around our windows. And this one, for this week, Jesus in the temple, is a little bit hard to find. If you look about a third of the way forward here on the east side and you see Jesus at the triumphal entry coming in on the donkey, down and to the left from there is the picture Some of you can see it if you're really close, but it's going to be tricky if you're in the balcony um, or over here. So you can refer to it also on the bulletin cover. But if you look at that image, you will see Jesus whip ready for action. He literally has the high ground there in the picture. He's on the steps. He's coming down, arm in a backswing, ready to drive out the animals and the merchants The money changer there is cowering behind a table that's tipping over. The coins are clattering to the floor. The merchant selling birds sort of has his arm out defensively, like he's ready to ward off this onslaught. If you look closely in that image, you see a yellow panel between Jesus and the people. There's something that almost looks like a lightning bolt there. We have other jagged edges in other scenes here, but in that particular pain, to me, it seems to speak of the electricity of that moment. It's about as dynamic as a leaded glass portrait can be. In the early 1300s, another artist, an Italian named Giotto, painted a fresco that was commissioned for a family chapel. And in Giotto's version, there are two kids that appear behind Jesus near the disciples. So one of the little children has his face buried into the tunic of John, and John's got his arm around him. And another child leans up against Peter's legs. He's clutching a bird. He almost looks like he wants to disappear into Peter. It's as if that artist is saying, Jesus, Should such a thing as this be done in front of the children? What's going on here? Well, an account of Jesus driving out the money changers and the herds and the shepherds and the flock keepers from the temple shows up in all four of the Gospels. And in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, it appears just where it does in our image around the sanctuary here. It shows up during... Passion Week, right before Jesus will go to the cross. And on a purely human level, disrupting this, this temple system sure seems like it would be the sort of thing that temple authorities wouldn't stand for, They'd try to do something to stop that. But John, John casts this a little differently. He arranges his gospel so that this scene appears right at the beginning of Jesus' ministry. It's as if he wants to show us all of Jesus' actions with the temple, all of Jesus' ministry coming up against some of those religious leaders through this opening story. It's a sign Jesus gives through which the rest of his ministry is witnessed. It's the week leading up to the Passover, and the streets of Jerusalem are thronged, mobbed with pilgrims. Crowds would rival those at a peak day in Disney World. The smell of baking bread and roasted meat is wafting on the air. And as Jesus approaches the temple, the clink of coins is punctuating the sounds of animals, parents directing children, family groups on the move. Because every Jewish adult male has to come to the temple to pay the temple tax with temple-approved currency. And every household has to come to the temple to sacrifice a temple-approved animal according to their means. And it's hard to know exactly when it happened, but over time, those coin changers, those shopkeepers, from the streets of Jerusalem began to overflow into the outer court of the temple. It was convenient, really, for those travelers why drive your own lamb all the way from Galilee or the Decapolis, risk hurting it on the way and having no sacrifice to offer? So the argument could be made that those folks inside the temple, the coin changers, the keepers of the flocks, were providing a service. Look how thoughtful they are, making it so convenient for those beleaguered travelers. But finding sellers of cattle and sheep, and pigeons, and money changers sitting at their tables in God's house. It's more than Jesus can take. So he weaves together a whip of ropes, flicks his wrist, makes contact with the flank of an ox, Giddy up! Get out of here! The bankers start scrambling to gather their ledgers and their spilled coins, and Jesus starts turning over their tables. Get this stuff out of here. My father's house is not a market. And although Fortress Antonia is right next door, no soldiers, no temple police that materialized to stop Jesus. The disciples stand nearby. What is going on? Jesus acts alone, one man on an outsized mission. And the words of Psalm 69 ring in the disciples' ears. Zeal for God's house will devour me, consume me. God's pa- Jesus passion for the honor of God's house It's not a flash of impulsive anger. It's not something that blazes up out of nowhere. It is deliberate. It is purifying and it's hot. What? What is it, Jesus, that's bothering you so much about this? Is it that the market is squeezing out the non-Jewish believers coming to worship there in the court of Gentiles the closest they could get Is it that unscrupulous money changers are fleecing people coming to worship? Maybe. But it's clearest from Jesus' words that he's offended by distractions and dishonor and even the displacement of reverence for a holy God. What is noisy and commonplace and maybe even corrupt has crept into the place where God dwells. Maybe others could walk past kiosks and cash registers and blue light specials in the Narthex and not bat an eye, Scott Jose writes. But Jesus took the affront of all of this personally. So I have a question. For us, who would you rather get to know? Gentle Jesus, meek and mild? Or zealous Jesus, mean and wild? G.K. Chesterton thought that the image of Christ that the church of his time highlighted the most was the mild and merciful Jesus, But he also thought that the portrait of the Gospels was more complicated than that. Chesterton says, there's nothing meek and mild about the tone of voice that says, hold your peace and come out of him. That's much more like the tone of the most businesslike lion tamer. And Chesterton's right about that. In fact, the word that John uses to refer to Jesus driving out these occupants of the temple is the same word used elsewhere in the New Testament to drive out demons from where they don't belong. There are good reasons why Jesus, the merciful Savior of sinners, is the one that the church highlights because we have to know we have to know the astonishing depth of God's mercy for us. We need to hear it, and we need to practice it, and we need to live inside it, and we need to share it abundantly every single day. But we also need Jesus convicted, Jesus in command, Jesus strong and ready to do whatever it takes to remove whatever, whatever obstacle might be in the way, of people coming into the presence of a living God. So maybe we like gentle Jesus because we wonder, what does Jesus' zeal mean for us when we try to follow him? How much would you like to sit on a township board or work on a group assignment or live with a person who made it their life's goal to consciously emulate zealous Jesus? Might be tricky. No less a reformer than John Calvin has some thoughts about human zeal. He says, All of us should have zeal in common with the Son of God, but we're not all at liberty to pick up a whip that we may correct the vices of others with our hands. We have not received the same power, we have not been given the same commission. So we follow Jesus. And we know that we're not him. We know that Jesus sees more than we see, that his call is far beyond our own, that he has the power to redress wrongs. And we know that some tearing down and some building up is his work and his work alone. But still, what's a person to do when zeal gets stirred up in her soul and she cannot let it go? Sometimes the Holy Spirit steals, uh, stirs up zeal in us. It shakes us up and it gets our attention. It draws our attention to something broken, something wrong. When it rises up, we can't help but notice. But trying to address the wrong, that zeal identifies. That takes some work. Work take some wisdom and discernment and time. We have to test our convictions and our inclinations and our motives. We put them into conversation with scripture. We put them into conversation with the wide cloud of Christian witnesses, past and present, near and far. We test them through the lens of Jesus, the crucified, the one whose zeal led him to lay down, his life, for enemies and sinners. It's not hard to imagine that in the temple that day, there were some who saw what Jesus did and cheered inside. Finally, somebody was doing something about the lack of respect for God's house. But everyone watching also knew that Jesus' actions pointed beyond the immediate. They pointed to something else, something more consequential, something that would disrupt and change much about life as they had known it. And so that's why the Jewish leaders asked Jesus for a sign. Because Old Testament scriptures were coming to their minds and hearts, scriptures that told of someone who would come. So maybe Jesus' hearers would have thought of Zechariah 14, the day of the Lord, when the Messiah would come and there would be no merchant in the temple courts. Maybe they thought of the first verses of Malachi 3, which says that the Lord they are waiting for and seeking will come suddenly into the temple and give it a cleaning that no one would soon forget. Jesus' actions aren't just zealous. They're pointing to a claim about who he is, God's anointed one. So the Jews ask, what sign can you give us to prove your authority to do all of this? Can you authenticate that claim? Can you back that up? So Jesus answers, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. And everyone must have looked around at Herod's expansive temple, still under construction. Must have shaken their heads. Sure, it's taken 46 years to build this, but sure. You'll just raise it up again in three days. Yeah, right. Jesus' immediate audience is missing a piece of information, but John's readers are let in on the news. The temple that Jesus is speaking about is... His body. So, no wonder he can't overlook the marketplace and the temple courts. If the physical structure where God lives is being treated so badly, how much worse is it going to be for Jesus? Because the new temple, the place where God dwells, is in the divine Son. This Jesus, God's lamb, stands in the temple courts the week of Passover, prepared to carry away the sin of the world. This Jesus, who is so zealous for the honor of God and for people fit to live in the presence of that God, he carries a whip today, but in a few days, he will submit to a whip. This Jesus will bear upon himself the entire burden of sin that the entire temple sacrificial system hasn't been able to do away with. Of course, at the time, neither the disciples nor the Jewish authorities knew that. John says it was only after Jesus was raised from the dead that the disciples remembered he'd been saying things like this. Only after Jesus' resurrection, John says, they believed the scriptures and the words that Jesus had spoken. And somehow, family of God, that's reassuring to me because we all sense how we're living in a time that's different and disruptive and chaotic and uncertain. Some of us are as disoriented as we've ever been in our lifetimes. And somehow it's reassuring to know that what Jesus was doing in the temple didn't make sense, even to his closest followers, as they were living through it forward. Think of that. The actions of the most important person the world has ever known, who came to do the most important work that any of us has needed anyone to do for us ever, wasn't understood the time it happened it came clear only in retrospect the capital T temple had come god continues to refine and rebuild his temple us little T temples all over the world we have to look for that but there are signs out there that are encouraging and challenging and give us reasons for hope I read a very, very short story this week about some Christian students. And the phrase, zeal for God's honor, never showed up in the account, but it's certainly there. The Fuller Seminary student body includes members from 90 different countries. And so after some American students at Fuller heard about an attack on Egyptian Christians by ISIS, The American students wanted to support their Egyptian classmates here stateside and say to them, hey, we're with you. We see that this terrible thing has happened to the family of God in Egypt and we want to support you. They wanted to hold a memorial service in honor of the lives that had been lost. But the Egyptian students saw things quite differently. They saw the faithfulness. Of those who had been killed back home as a reason to celebrate. They wanted to hold a worship service that would be about acknowledging what it means to live as a Christian in a context in which you have the privilege of laying down your life. So together, the students planned and held a service of celebration, a- acknowledging the Acts 5 honor of suffering for the name of Jesus. That's a zeal for the honor of Jesus that I could use more of. Because of the crucified Jesus, we together are leaning toward a city that's to come where the Lord Almighty and the Lamb will be our temple, where the glory of God will give us light and where Jesus himself will be the light of our way. That is worth all of the zeal that he offers us. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we are people living in a moment of history that is not lost to you. We know the most important work that you can do on our behalf has already been done. And yet we ask you to make us faithful along the way, until the time you come again. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to the Grave Avenue CRC's Sermon Podcast.